Just a heads up, Campus features mature content. In this episode, we continue our story, revisiting the Virginia Tech massacre. Two survivors recount that horrific day and the trauma that remains 10 years later. Before we get into it, just in case you missed it, let's get you caught up with our last episode. The door bursts open and the gunman comes in and um, starts firing. I have a brief flash of seeing him. You know, I kind of just laid there and very, very tense. At some point, you know, during all the shots, I realized that, that I've been shot myself. And I almost pray I... I think, hold on, just just hold on for a little bit longer. Hold on for a little bit longer because it will be over. I think if I could hold on to my end of the bargain, which is being really, really still and really, really low, that the shooter, he wouldn't be able to to see me. Our nation is shocked and saddened by the news of the shootings at Virginia Tech today. Many across our nation are praying for the victims and their families and all the members of the university community who have been devastated by this terrible tragedy. Schools should be places of safety and sanctuary and learning. When that sanctuary is violated, the impact is felt in every American classroom and every American community. I I turned a couple desks over to try to get that between us and the shooter. Um, He shot for probably a minute and a half, uh, and after that he left. He reloaded his clip and nobody could really stop him because we were all hit or scared out of our minds. It's insane. Just thinking back to Columbine and stuff like that, it's just utter shock how anybody could do this to anybody else. It's something that no one will ever get over. I mean, the people who died, yes, they've finished their pain, but the pain for everybody else is going forever, forever. I'm Wolf Blitzer, and you're in the Situation Room. Now, since the president spoke, obviously Virginia state officials have updated those numbers to say that 30, at least 33, have died in this massacre. Also, the president, to flesh out what he was saying about reaching out to state officials, he spoke to Governor Kane. He also spoke to the president of Virginia Tech. I woke up, and I remember I looked down, and the first thing I noticed was this line of stitches just down the center of my stomach. and. I couldn't comprehend what had actually just happened. And my parents were in the room, and there were doctors, and I looked up, and one of the first things I saw was the TV was on, and CNN was playing. Someone took a photograph of myself being carried out of Norris Hall right before I was put on the grass. And I looked up, and without any knowledge of what had just happened or what happened to me or, or my classmates, see myself on TV, and I was like, why am I on CNN? 
A law enforcement official familiar with the investigation now tells CNN the campus shooter may have unleashed as many as 225 bullets at Norris Hall at Virginia Tech. One doctor told CNN every victim he treated had been hit at least three times. The patient that I took care of was, was an incredible guy, and I didn't really get to talk to him much until afterwards. Uh, he had a gunshot wound right through his femoral artery, and it literally ripped three centimeters out of his femoral artery of his right leg, and he was bleeding significantly. And without him taking care of himself, initially, I think, the, I think he would have, good chance that he would have died. So waking up in that recovery room and seeing uh, somebody else that was in my class that was in that recovery room and kind of giving them a nod and kind of like a wave and knowing that, you know, at that point that uh, that it was going to be okay. But I don't know if I really grasp even the, the magnitude of it until, you know, watching uh, CNN and the headline news, that was kind of all that they were covering and all they were talking about and all the different reports and things like that and you know I think seeing my picture kind of showed the somewhat of the scope I wish you know that you know it wasn't taken and that I wasn't in it but other times it's it's a really good picture because it shows you know despite it being kind of grainy showing the the faces of the police officers that are carrying me down um, and kind of how much ragdoll I am and just kind of how lifeless whatnot that I was at that point. It's bizarre knowing when that picture was taken and seeing it on TV and things like that. It's, it's kind of bizarre. As we've been saying, 33 people dead, including the gunman who went on this massacre at the Virginia Tech campus. And as we've been discussing much of the carnage... As the world tried to make sense of the massacre, Kevin Stern and Christina Anderson were only just beginning to grapple with the trauma of that morning. After the chaos and the carnage, they were among a small group of survivors left with bullets inside their bodies. Surgeons may have saved their lives, but Kevin and Christina were now facing a long road to recovery. I remember... I would wake up in the middle of the night. Like, loud noises really did freak me out. It would just be like one bang, and it was probably just the nearest ICU room closing, but I would like pop upright and my eyes would open. And I thought every single bang was a gunshot or some other loud noise. And so I was, I was freaked out, I was on edge. It was just painful. I remember looking over and every single like vein had an IV in it. There was bandages all over my stomach. They, they removed the bullets from the front, and so they essentially cut me open and took out a lot of organs and, and tried to put me back together. So if you can't move your stomach, you don't have your sense of gravity, your sense of self, I felt very helpless. I felt very like I lost control. You know, when I got out of the hospital, I kept coming back there and seeing the same people while I was still in town and doing more walking and the issue was is that where I was shot, the bullet lodged in the head of my femur. Um, and they can see that on x-rays, but it wasn't easy or apparent, you know, to, to get the bullet. You know, I basically I think it's not like floating around in there. It's like stuck in there like a nail or something, you know. So it's to pull it out, it could have, you know, fractured it more and done more damage. So they just 
decided to leave it in. It took weeks for their bodies to slowly recuperate. The physical scar still needed time to heal. But for Kevin and Christina, the emotional scars were only just beginning to surface, and they would soon have to return to campus and face the ghosts of April 16th. I can't remember how long it had been afterwards that I stepped on campus, but I, I do remember touring the the memorials, you know, whether it was the stones out in front of Burris or the plywood pieces that people had put up and were signing, and and there were tons of you know flowers and notes and small letters that people had written and left. It was really kind of uplifting and overwhelming. And at one point, they offered us a tour, like a walkthrough of the building. And I I had an appointment to meet the captain at Virginia Tech uh, Police Department and like a, a counseling liaison to go through the building. And we're up there, and he says, you know, you're going to lead this. Like, if at any point you want to stop or lead, like, you just tell, say it's the word, but... You know, we'll kind of take it at your pace. And so I said, okay. And it was at that point I have... I've never felt this since. My lower lip just started to tremble. It was it was an uncontrollable shake. And it was, I think my body saying, okay, here we go. Because my deepest memories were the front of the building. Like, there's a lot of symbolism on that door. And so we're walking through, and I'm thinking, like, oh shit, oh shit, it's gonna, it's gonna start. And so we came up the hallway. He's showing us room by room, but as we got closer and closer, I got even more, like, I sort of shaking more and getting really nervous. And we make a left, and we go into the room, and there's no desks. It's just, it's cleared out but there's chalkboards on on the walls where the bullets were. And I started to cry and I fell to the ground and I started to cry and to bawl. And the only thought I remember having was, I'm sorry. I am so, so sorry for what happened to you. And I, I couldn't walk throughout the room I just I sat there in that first little corner and I looked to where where I imagined I was and I tried to kind of replay what happened and where I was sitting but I was like paralyzed <sighs> the horror of that day may have ended when the last gunshot rang through the corridors of Norris Hall. But for Christina and Kevin, the nightmare of that day would continue to haunt them. Originally, the dreams were a flashback to that day. It started with a very brief snippet, like a split second of an image, but then that changed into some kind of other weird dream, but usually ended, you know, feeling trapped or my heart racing. And 
feeling like I couldn't get away or not being able to get back to sleep for another hour or so because you're trying to forget it but then the more you say like oh I want to forget about that the more you might think you just think about that it was definitely never a day that went by that I didn't have a flashback I I was extremely extremely on edge like I felt like wherever I could be something could happen to me like I would watch the windows I'd make sure they were closed the doors I would watch the center the middle of those doors just kind of almost waiting for them to open So the shower was one of the more was one of the especially harder parts because I was in a small space and I would I felt the most vulnerable. Uh, I felt the most vulnerable in there because I thought that at any point someone could burst in the room and shoot me. And I would obsess about if the shower door heated up or it was foggy. I would like intentionally kind of smudge it a little bit so I could see through the shower just in case. It's almost like showering with one eye open. And if I dropped the red bathrobe on the floor, I remember like looking out from the shower and just having almost like a second glance of what was that? And part of me was probably thinking that that could have been like a person or a body. The biggest flashback was the one of the individual behind the door. And I think that's just what I, what I thought back to was that it was him uh, laying there. That's when I kind of started to realize, I think I started to feel out what the longer term repercussions would be, like no one prepares you for how to survive a school shooting or how to talk to people about this or how to talk to your friends. You just feel crazy. You feel crazy for being afraid all the time or for thinking that someone's gonna start shooting in the restaurant or wherever you are, or that you jump at every car backfiring. And I felt like I think I was grieving uh, my classmates and what had happened and the situation I found myself in, quite frankly. Like, you're 19 years old and you're thinking, what does this even mean for me? Like, how is this going to impact the rest of my life? Some parts that I struggle with, even till now, is, is somewhat of like a temperament. It's not that I get angry at the shooter or anything even related to that, but I just get angry. And and that would happen a lot where on a daily basis I would have like arguments with myself and getting myself worked up and kind of that anxious feeling and frustrated and angry and all things together, you know. I was dealing with like an insurance company. I think like I went through this automated menu on my cell phone. And then at some point, you know, I hit an option and it's like, oh, well, this is your answer. And I'm like, no, that wasn't the real question I was trying to ask. And they're like, okay, this is your answer. Thanks for calling, click. You know, and hangs up. And just being like, oh man, and just like took my cell phone and threw it across my bedroom. like smashed into the wall, broke into a couple different pieces, and dropped like right there, like realizing, oh crap, that was dumb, like I didn't, I shouldn't have thrown my cell phone because now it's all smashed up. And so then I ended up just like, in a rage, just like take my bed and just flip it up. Throw it across the room, you know, and 
it just really had gotten worked up like that. It was uh, it was kind of bizarre. And I called somebody, I think, after I mean, I must have sent them an email or something. Had somebody come over. It was like, I just need to, like, talk to somebody. You know, they came over and looked at it, and they were like, you know, what happened? Like, what? Are you okay? And I was like, yeah. Not really sure what happened, but was a little unnerving being that kind of out of control. I went to see all my friends are back together, like there was a house party and that was the first time I was on campus since that first visit over the summer. And I remember like rushing into the door because it felt like this, it felt like a homecoming. It was like, I'm back, I'm normal again, like here are the people that I would normally see on this day of the week and on this part of my life going back to the next year. And at some point, I just remember I zoned out. I zoned up into my own head, and it didn't click for me what was happening with what I was feeling. And I remember everyone was really happy, and everyone's really smiling, and everyone's happy to see each other, and they're drinking, and most of them are probably drunk at this point. But I felt like, how could you be happy? Like, I couldn't identify with that feeling, and I felt bad for being happy. I felt bad for being there. I felt bad for celebrating and I couldn't even fake it. And then on top of that, I thought, if something were to happen, I can't get out of the door. Like, there's so many of us crammed in this apartment that I shouldn't be here. So I just felt really uncomfortable. And so I don't remember saying bye to anyone, but I just like evacuated and went for the, the door. Normal me would have been at that party for hours and then just gone home, <laughs> very carelessly getting drunk. But I have since then actually never again been able to just like shoot the shit and just completely unwind. And that sucks. Like that's the worst thing about this is the sense of like, no matter how much I go to therapy or drink or whatever else, like I'll never be able to regain that sense of innocence. So the following semester, um, it was a little bit unnerving and distracting being back in the classroom setting for the first time. My situational awareness was through the roof, so even if the door was open to our class, people walking by, I had to like see you know, who was it that was walking by and make sure they're not going to come in and you know start shooting me or something like that. And then I think even more so distracting if the door was shut. I, I think there were pros and cons for either. If the door was open, I could at least hear what was going on a little bit better, a little bit cleaner. Um, but then I knew there was no like initial barrier between me and the outside world. When the door was closed, I, I felt that kind of barrier. But then I couldn't hear as well. You know, All the sounds are muffled and you can't pick up on things and you couldn't easily tell and especially too if somebody's walking by you could hear them but you couldn't see them and so that was a really big distraction and it was hard to focus on you know studies and writing notes and what's going on I would sit in the back I would be very conscious of any sudden disturbing sound if it was someone dropping a book to someone coming in late like, the worst thing would be someone opening a door and peering in. Like, oh my god, like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like, because you think, why? What are they doing? Who are they? And then I would wait for the sounds of gunshots or something loud. And you could feel your heart pounding. And you're just waiting. And you're tense. And you can kind of, like, half concentrate what's actually happening. But I just felt like I, 
I think that I went back too soon. I should give myself a little bit more time. And I felt like I was in a funeral for that year of mourning them and mourning what had happened and mourning that I was alive to some extent because I couldn't comprehend why or how to live after that because everything was everything was shaken especially my sense of being even able to sit in a room without freaking out about something so I googled post-traumatic stress disorder and I saw some of the symptoms and I think the ones that it was like lack of sleep and worrying and anxiety and quickly I was like yep this is this qualifies and so I went on campus to a counselor and when you first walk in it's very formulaic they treat you like anyone else they give you a survey and they, they rate you on things like do you have trouble sleeping do you want to kill yourself like quite frankly like I was scared I was scared to admit some of those things were were accurate you know it's the first time I'm having to admit or face to another individual that I don't know like what had just happened and I remember his face like it kind of just dropped when I said no no I was actually shot like he had this look of bewilderment like he didn't know what to do with me and that pissed me off because the questions he was asking he was asking anything helpful what I wanted someone to do at that point was to help validate that all the shit that I was feeling in my head and all the fear and all the anxiety, that it was normal and that it was okay. That's all I wanted someone to do. And so I finally went off campus and I saw someone named Jane for like two years and she let me just talk about it and she would ask questions to like guide us through that day. I didn't acknowledge to myself or to anyone else that I was obviously feeling some of those post-traumatic triggers and and heaviness and loss from the shooting. So she gave me a really safe space to say, today we're only going to talk about this part of the day or this thought that you have or this horrible belief that you have about the shooting. And we're going to try to dive into the, the why around that. And it was, she made me feel like I wasn't crazy to be afraid of showers, to be afraid of people, to be afraid of loud noises. I mean, just regular stuff like that, which Later, when I met other survivors, I can now bounce those things off of them and have the same validation. But like I said, no one was really there to to provide that except for her. I get this sometimes, you know, people think that I should be mad, you know, at at him or his family or anything like that. And I'm not. And, And I think part of that is being on the receiving end of such a rage and anger that I don't want to perpetuate that and try to maybe it's more of the logical side that I try to reason it and work things out so I feel like to be angry I would need to know why you know a lot of the why and like what were you thinking and like why my room and why our building and why did you do this and why did you do that Um, a lot of those questions will go unanswered instead I'll just think about something else and focus maybe a bit selfish and think about my own well-being and how I make myself better and I think the thing that I try to get away with and I think a lot of the survivors grapple with is you know we had this big spotlight and we had our world and our lives kind of thrown into chaos for a while and coming back to a normal life or a life beforehand is always something that I've always tried to get to Um, And it's always 
been a goal you know at first it was med- you know medically and physically you know how can I recover and how can I get myself better and focusing on that and then you know in the years afterwards it's how do I continue life you know how do I how do I get married and how do I you know do all sorts of other things that normal people do without that being you know a part of it it's crazy to say that it didn't change me at all and that it won't be something that I'll forget to sit around and say like oh you know I, I wish I could forget this it's that's I drive myself crazy and there's no way but having a life afterwards I think greatly helps return to that normalcy and that this didn't wreck or you know ruin a lot of what I wanted to do in life it is impossible to know how an event like April 16th might change you. There isn't a definitive rule book on dealing with trauma. In the aftermath of the Virginia Tech massacre, Christina and Kevin have faced a wide range of emotions. Anxiety, anger, fear, depression, rage, guilt. Kevin has spent the past decade trying to suppress all those feelings, focusing instead on moving on with his life. He rarely tells this story. For Christina, though, this story is her purpose. In fact, she now travels the world as an advocate for school safety. Talking about that horrific day is something she needs to do. I'm only now admitting to myself how much survivor's guilt there is. I think, in some ways, I think survivor's guilt is an even stranger thing to talk about than PTSD because PTSD is expectable I think it's it's not a hard jump to have to quantify or, or talk about I don't think there's any shame in that but survivor's guilt is weird because it's saying like you know I I feel bad for having lived <laughs> I feel bad for having for having survived but I think it's probably at the core one of the bigger things that pushed me to, to do this work and to talk about it or just to have it be part of my life because I always think back to like there are 12 people in my classroom 11 who are my age like directly my age and they don't have the benefit of making decisions whether they're good decisions or bad decisions they don't have the benefit of picking their spouses or anything else in life that we take for granted on a regular basis, right? That is a fucking gift that you have that opportunity to have that experience. And and they don't. And so I think about what kind of person would I be if if I didn't try? Like, they paid the ultimate price, and we owe it to them. Like, that's my way, I guess, of processing to myself that their passing was not for nothing. It wasn't forgotten, because it's been, you know, nine years, it'll be ten years. The time time is going to keep moving forward. I understand that. And I understand that I can't bring them back, and that's a weird thing to think about, that they will always be 18 like, we were just sitting there. We were sitting in a room. And someone decided to walk in. 
and either take someone's life and end it, or in our course, like completely change whether or not we can sit in the front of a classroom ever again. And so, yeah, I guess like, but it's just like this feeling that we now have a duty, I now have a duty and a responsibility to live my life to the best way possible because this happened to me and because I, I, I was lucky, I was spared for, for whatever reason, um, I survived. And so there's no question, I have to make the most of that because I have to make my own why. I have to make my own purpose afterwards. Some people are, you know, asked the simple question of how do I go throughout my day knowing that I have this, you know, memories and these, you know, things in my past. And I don't think mentally I thought that there wasn't an opportunity that I could get back to my life before. I think the thing that helped me with that is the more that I did that wasn't focused on April 16th helped me feel like I was making progress from from getting away from that and maybe that's part of why you know I don't do a ton of interviews and I'm not like Christina where I'm out advocating and, and doing you know the great work that they do um, but you know and they they live it you know every day you know out there advocating for policy change and, and laws and things like that which is you know and I, I don't think that they're crazy um, and I don't think that they're doing it wrong. One thing that I have learned is that when you're processing such grief and such things that there is no wrong way to do it. Um, there's no set way that you should do it. You know, if, if there's certain ways that people just want to live their life afterwards, then that's, you know, the path that they choose. But I think I, I wanted a life that didn't involve April 16th or didn't basically somebody doesn't introduce me you know to somebody else and say hey this is Kevin he's one of the April 16th survivors you know that's kind of exactly what I don't want um you know I want people to know me for something else for being a friend or for the work that I do for where I'm from or you know that kind of thing you know April 16th changed my identity but I, and I'm not trying to, I think, erase that part, but um, to make an identity that's not solely based on that, I think is a good way to put it. Someone asked me recently if after what I went through, if after having the worst day of my life, if every other day is a little bit better and or not as bad, I guess. And the best answer I can give is today all in all, I'm great for where I could be, for I think what, considering what happened, I'm in a very, in a very good place. I, I love what I do. I still get like, I get butterflies walking into presentations. I am so thankful for the people that I get to meet and the impact I, I hope that I have. But that said, there are days when I feel like I have to call my therapist and there are days when I feel like I have to have a big glass of wine after a presentation and I have to be okay with that. And the reality is it stays with you throughout. I will never be, like if okay is what I was before, no, I'll never be okay. I will always be like scarred in some way. But 
I'm okay with where I am. I think I've made the best out of it that I can. Um, but I also realized that there's gonna be challenges down the line and that I have to keep working at it and I have to be very on top of it and very, very aware of the shooting. And it's something I have to handle for the rest of my life. But I, I've always told myself that if I ever wake up and don't wanna give a presentation, I, I'll stop. But the thought that I have is, if not me, then who? Like if I'm not gonna tell the story, who's gonna tell? And, and now I know what the average person doesn't know about mass shootings. Like I have to get the word out. I have to share that because so many people think, oh, he had just mental health issues or it's because they wore trench coats because this or that. And that's so not the case. I'm not okay with those inaccuracies persisting because really tech could have been prevented. It's not like this, we blink our eyes and 30 people lose their lives. It is, it is very much preventable. And so, yeah, I think that's where I put my, my, my passion and my work and my joy. So I'm okay for today. I'm as okay as someone who can be who was shot three times. Like whatever that looks like to you, like I'm as okay personally as I think I can be. But does that mean that I'm fully recovered? No, no, by any means. Campus is produced by Eric Van and me, Albert Lowe. The senior producer of Campus is Sean Brocklehurst. If you want to hear more life-changing stories on campus, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. Give us a shout on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Let us know what you thought about this week's episode. Hit us up at Campus CBC. Thanks for listening. Take care.